0: Right, head over to James chapter 1. We're still there. James chapter 1. If you're looking for it in a paper Bible, it's going to be near the end, right? Um, and keep in mind, every, every section that we are expounding, that we are unpacking, that we are explaining, right, it's in this context uh, of, of James, right, the half brother of Jesus, writing a letter to the new, ch- new church, the Christians. Uh, and so far, we've seen James writing about the difficult trials of life that we all face. He, he is helping us to see trials as of various kinds. Through the eyes of God, not, not the way we naturally see it, but through the eyes of God, to see they're actually doing something beneficial for us, right? We might not enjoy them, they might be miserable, but there is good that comes through that. That they are creating a steadfastness, and as James wrote in verse 4, uh, this leads us to, to this state of, of wholeness and, and completeness. And now today, our, our first verse we're going to look at today is verse 12, and this verse is going to act as a bridge which looks backwards, right, to the purpose of suffering like we've been doing the last couple weeks, while also moving us into this next issue, uh, and, and that's in regards, how do you view God when you face trials? Is, is God good? Is God cruel? Do we blame God? In other words, do, do we know how to view God in a healthy and true way? When we find ourselves in painful and difficult situations in our lives. We find ourselves on the other end of temptations, Ethan. Now, I'll I'll tell you right here from the start, I don't always do this, but I'll tell you today, the overarching point today is just the title of the sermon, right? Sin is deadly, but God is good. Sin is deadly, but God is good. Now, let's go ahead and and read, and we're going to read all the way, starting in verse 12. I'm going to read all the way to the end of the Bible. Just kidding. To the end of verse 18. told you, my eyes. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we desire to be the blessed one who remains steadfast under trial. We want to grow in our, our sanctification to be more like Christ. We ask, please teach us from your word this morning how to think about temptation, how to view you rightly. So we ask that you would enlighten our minds and draw our focus into your powerful word, which we have just read. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, right off the bat, right here in verse 12, we are seeing this this promise of of a truly beautiful future encounter with God. uh, An encounter that comes after we transition from this temporal life, right, that we just call life. Uh, and into this eternal life that is to come and that is to go on forever. And In other words, what we're learning here is, that, is the final result of enduring these trials that James is talking about. You hear it when he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So we get this picture of a crown, right? We tend to, to see a, a big golden crown of sorts on someone's head. In, in, in ancient Greek cities, right, heroes were given these golden crowns, and they were given as a means to, to show honor to someone for maybe a position they have served in, or, 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 or to kind of reward them for some achievement that they had actually accomplished, something significant. And so are we then competing with one another, right, for this one small group of crowns, this crown of life that... That is just reserved for the most spectacular of Christians, right? Like, like some sense of Roman Catholic sainthood. Not at all. You, you don't need to throw elbows at the people next to you. You you don't need to outrighteous them in, in order to try to get a crown that only one of you might be able to get. You see, when Scripture mention mentioned a crown, uh, you know a variety of crowns. These are often um, gifts of God for His people, right? You think of uh, the crown of joy in First Thessalonians two twenty. The crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4.8, or the unfading crown of glory in 1 Peter 5.4. Now, you see, once you really begin to, to get a biblical view of crowns, and, and you think about the way these are worded and the way they get explained, you, you begin to realize they're not literal crowns, right? You're not looking for this, this literal crown made of some material like, same thing, right? There's not a material of joy that this crown's going to be made of. There's not a, a material of righteousness that it's going to be made out of. Rather, when you receive the crown of joy, what you're receiving is joy. When you receive the crown of righteousness, what you're receiving is Christ's righteousness. The, the crown of life in our passage promised by God is, is really better understood, the crown that is life. That, that's what we receive. The, this crown is, is for the one who endures trials and who loves God. The, the crown of life is, is not Something, though, that is obtained through some hard work on our effort is a, a gift of God that he gives to all who are his, to, to all whom he has redeemed, to, to all who rely upon Jesus for their righteousness. As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? Not the well-earned reward of God. The free gift of God. It's a, it's a free gift. Um, Right, not for some certain level of well-done, righteous living. And Christian, you need to know that when God gives you faith, that faith will endure to the end. You will endure. This is a, a doctrine, right? A well-known doctrine called the perseverance of the saints, right? That if God redeems you, you're not going like, to suddenly wander off and uh, away from God later on. One place we, we see this real clearly is Philippians 1.6, when, when the Apostle Paul says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Your walk with God will fluctuate. You know that. You've experienced that in your life. You're going to feel closer to God at some times and more distant from God at other times. You're going to love God with a greater passion at times. Maybe it's going to be weaker before it becomes stronger. You, you might drift into sin before the conviction of the Holy Spirit brings you back, draws you to repentance, draws you back to godliness, right? But, but the life-giving faith that God gives will endure for the duration of your days, He who began it will continue it. And the source of our endurance is not some self-determination, some apathetic, just do it, duty and the hope. So, you know, I want the prize at the end, but I hate all this. Right? It's not that. The source of your endurance is is the love of God for you and and a love for God that you have. A love that you can't just conjure up. A love that He fills you with for Him. After all, at the very core, the crown of life Right. What we're talking about here is not just life in some general term, but eternity with the Father, with the Son, with the Holy Spirit. You know, if, if you hate the taste of artichoke dip, but you're like, I'm going to eat it every day because if I do, I can trade all these empty cups of artichoke dip in for a reward at the end and I can't wait to get it. Right? If that's what you're doing and you hate artichoke dip, but you're just doing it for the prize, you're going to be incredibly disappointed when you learn that the prize is just an endless supply of artichoke dip. Right? That's what you get. This, this crown of life is not earned then right, by your steadfast endurance, but it is a, a promise God has waiting for you at the end of these trials. So we want to keep enduring. And, and that crown is eternal life. Really, you might even say it's an endless supply of the presence of God. God intends the trials in your life to to strengthen your love for God. And unfortunately, as you and I both know, maybe by experience sometimes, maybe from seeing friends go through this, trials do not always produce an enduring and deeper love for God. For some, trials lead to doubt and bitterness towards God. Some lead to to people just walking away from the faith they have professed. And that's where James now turns his focus, right, in verse 13. James here, look at it, you got it out in front of you, verse 13. James here is reminding us uh, of that destructive, right, other path that you might take when facing trials of various kind. Uh, And he knows it all too well, that when we suffer, we are also tempted to sin. And, And notice, James doesn't say here, if we are tempted, like, like maybe there's a chance, right? On the crazy off chance that maybe you get tempted. He's saying you will. When you get tempted, right? You are going to face temptation in this life. Don't expect God to remove all temptations from your life, Christians. You're just like you're going to get hungry. And listen, being tempted is, is not sin. Right? Jesus was tempted in, in, in that sense in, in the wilderness. So, so what James is getting at here in verse 13, though, is is our tendency to blame someone else for the temptation we, we face. Or to blame someone else for the sin that we commit. For, for just about everything, really, right? This has been true since the very first sin. Genesis 3. God goes and he asks Adam, after this happened, right? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? And you, most of you probably know, right? What he said. Now, now he could have said, yeah, Yes, I did. I ate of the tree, right? That, that would have been the, the straightforward, honest thing to do, but, but Adam blames Eve, and, and he words it in such a way that he's also blaming God. You ever, look, like, paid attention to this in real detail, right? Adam says, the woman whom you gave me, right? So it's the woman and the one you gave me. I'm innocent here, right? And he goes on, whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. I was just, wrong place, wrong time. Uh we are all incredibly gifted excuse makers for everything. When our, uh, when our kids were still very young and in the presence of some of our friends, uh, our eldest child, that gives it away, Beckham, when he was little, right, he just outright, outright disobeyed and, and I had explained it away. He'd been up late the night before and he was ex- all this stuff and I was like, he's just so tired, like that's, that's why. And, and that friend with you know, a certain degree of snark said, oh, so it's okay to sin if you're tired. Um, right, that's the the proper amount of snark, probably, which which led to a much longer conversation of really thinking about that idea. But, but really, it was this enlightening moment for me to see how we tend to blame people in situations for our sin. But right? I can't tell you how many times in my life where some sort of question like, so, so why did you spend all that time looking at pornography, or why did you say those awful things to your spouse? And, and almost always the response is, I was I was so tired. I, I was so stressed out, I am just worn down from life, I'm so discouraged by this or that, or all these other excuses, and, and, and all that information actually can be really helpful for learning to take godly paths when we face exhaustion or stress or whatever else it might be, but, but that's a conversation for another day. What, what I want you to see here is, is the simple fact that we are prone to blame someone or something else for our sin. Very little, very rarely do we want to just be like, yeah, that's me. I did that. And when we feel tempted to sin, the person that we most often blame is God himself. God, you made me like this. Why do I even want to do this, right? God, you put me in this situation. That's why James says in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Why not say that? Well, because it's not true. That's the real simple reason, right? Look, look at verse 13. James says emphatically, God cannot be tempted with evil. That only answers the first house, right? But, but he himself tempts no one. Yeah, but God tempts some people, right? No one. None. Right? He's holy. That, that's who God is. His very nature, right? He is not the author of sin. He's not going to tempt anyone. I know, some of you have already been through this kind of conversation before, and you're like, yeah, but God does test people. Isn't testing just another word for, for tempting? No. I know we use it that way often in our own kind of general conversation. It's not. The, the intention of, of testing someone is very different from the intention of tempting someone. But when your teacher, you know, takes the math test that, you know, she's been teaching you for a while and hands it out to you, she... She's not, usually, right, I know you might have that one weird exception, but usually she's not like, oh, I can't wait to make them miserable and see how dumb they are, right? She wants you to see what you've learned, what all this process, what all this study has actually led to. She wants you to succeed and be built up in, in this area, right? But when the, when the car salesman tries to get you to buy a car that he knows that you cannot afford, that it's financially unwise for you, he actually wants you to fail, he wants you to give in and, and go into financial hardship for your own gain, right? And I don't want to throw all car salesmen under the bus, right? But, but you can kind of see the different motivation here. But if you fail the test that your teacher hands out, absolutely possible. We don't pass all the tests that we, that we face. Now, you cannot blame her for that failure. She, she gave you plenty of time to prepare, Right? She taught you the things you need to know, told you generally, these are the things that are going to be on the test. And meanwhile, you played video games and, you know, checked up on TikTok or whatever it might be. You didn't pay attention in class, right? That test might be the occasion of your failure. Understand this. It might be the occasion of your failure, but it was not the cause of your failure. It's similar with all all the temptations that we face in life. Your difficult situation, your stress, your exhaustion, whatever someone else might have done, right? might be the occasion for your sin, but it is not the cause of your sin. Genesis 22.1 says that God tested Abraham. Right, If you remember Genesis 22, this is where, where, where God asked him to do one of the most bizarre things. You ever hear God ever say, I want you to take your son, your only son, and you're going to go sacrifice him up on this big old hill. Right? God was not seeking for Abraham to fail in this moment. He, he was giving Abraham an opportunity to see the authenticity, how strong, how, you know, the, the faith that he has, to, to learn also, right, that he can trust God even in the hardest of situations, even a situation that seems like, God, if I actually do this, it's going to make your previous promise to me a lie. And, and yet he trusts the Lord. It, it's a real life example, really, of, of what we read in First Peter 1, 6, right? You have been grieved by various trials so that the, the tested genuineness of your faith, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the resurrection of Jesus Jesus Christ, revelation of Jesus Christ. The tests are to strengthen us, and and if tests become temptation, it is only because of our own sinful hearts. Um, We often turn good things into evil things, sinful things. Dan Dan Doriani, he's a uh, professor, I believe he's still a professor at Covenant, is he, Jeremy? Yeah. Yeah. Okay? Uh, He's a a pastor in our denomination. He gives this example, and I'll I'll warn you at the beginning. It's going to sound incredibly chauvinist. You're probably going to think of reasons to hate this. Um, But it's very powerful, actually. He says this. He says, "...a a woman's beauty is intrinsically both good and innocent. Beauty by itself never forces anyone to sin. Men ought to be capable of noticing God's handiwork with a female form with perfect innocence. To uh, To have a detached admiration... Much as as a visitor at an art gallery has detached admiration for a still-life painting of fruit on a table, but many men have difficulty with such detachment. Approval of beauty becomes desire for beauty, and desire for beauty becomes lust for beauty. Where does the fault lie? With the beauty created by God, intended to by the woman? No, it lies with the man who so readily turns approval to lust. If you don't like the chauvinistic, maybe, right, example, right, you can do it with anything. A friend's car or their newly remodeled kitchen. Whatever it might be, you, you, can, you can look at those things and find these are quite wonderful without coveting, without wanting them. Without desiring them in that covetous way. Uh, the simple point of verse 13 uh, is that God does not tempt you. Okay? And, and the application of that is, so do not say that God tempts you. But but even more important than not saying it is this, do not believe the lie that God tempts you because he doesn't. Now in verses 14 and 15, James personifies how temptation can lead to death. Uh, and he does it in terms of the human reproductive process. Thank you, James. Uh, he also does it in such a way that, that we can really begin to break it down and, and see how temptation works. It's kind of a, a fascinating little passage here. It's, it's, it's almost like when you're watching a football game and the commentator on TV is, like stops and they show that super slow motion and they start showing you all the details of what's happening that you, you didn't see the first time. You're like, oh, that guy pretended to have the ball and this guy tripped over here. and like, All these different things and suddenly it all makes sense to you. So, so what James is doing is that, that process that sometimes happens really quick in our life, or maybe even thoughtlessly in our life, he's, he's slowing down the process of sinning so that we can see each step as it happens. And the first thing that he addresses is, is the source of our temptations. And he doesn't say the devil, although we know that the deceiver does indeed do that. Uh, Far more often, it's as James says here in verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Again, notice we are not being lured from something outside of ourselves. It's not the blame in that way. It's it's a battle that is happening inside of you, and it usually begins completely unnoticed. It seems like just a harmless desire. Right? Not not appreciation, but a harmless desire is the way it seems. To, a desire to have, or to possess, or to control, or to destroy, or, or something along that nature. And again, we think of it as absolutely no big deal. It's just a cute little pollywog. What could go wrong? Nothing to be concerned with here. But, which is why many men and women, after you know remarkable sins, and I don't mean that in a good way, remarkable and you know infidelity and murder embezzling and embezzling and things of that nature, they always seem to say something like, I don't know how I got here, right? That that's the thing. I don't know where I I can't imagine I got here. Well, you followed your heart. One step at a time, little by little. Right? It's the what is it? The proverbial frog in the pot or crab in the pot as they say along the coast. Anyway, so later in verse 16 James is going to implore us, right? To implore you do not be deceived. You see, being deceived is how we end up in sin, particularly deep sin, or blaming God for sin. Do you you remember back in Genesis 3.13 that what what Eve said to God after she sinned? I know, we keep going back to Genesis, right? She said, the serpent deceived me. She was deceived. And then she blames the serpent, right? And the serpent uh, is guilty and gets his punishment, but so is Eve guilty. And and for her, it, it really began in her own heart, as she was enticed by her own desire. Genesis 3.16, right? It's going before they fell, right? When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Now we know in in Genesis 2.9, right, that the other trees were also pleasant to the sight and good for food. Those are just not really of any nature there, right? They're pretty much the same. But, but she was no longer viewing this tree through the eyes of God. She was viewing it through her own eyes. She was viewing it through the, the deception that comes through um, the serpent here. And, and, and she no longer, right? She, she's no longer looking at this as something that God forbids and maybe for a good reason. It's just something that I want. And the next stage in this is slow motion life cycle is this unrestrained desire Uh, conceiving a child, it says, right? Or as my incredibly proper Scottish professor in seminary, Sinclair Ferguson, so unexpectedly words it, he said, the sperm of temptation unites with the egg of opportunity. And somewhere his son cringed. Um, In in other words, this desire to sin, if it remains unchallenged, when given the opportunity to act on it, you will act on it. And you know that you found yourself in those situations before on some level. And and that's the conception that leads to the the birth of this personified child named Sin. And once sin is given birth, you know, comes into the world, sin does what babies tend to do. It grows up. And and James says that sin brings forth death. That language brings forth, right? That's another idea of, of gives birth to death. Um, right, has its own child named Death. The unchecked desire leads to sin and sin to death. That's exactly what what occurred in the garden, right? They ate of the fruit and as God promised, they died. Eventually bodily, uh, immediately spiritually as they lost this intimacy with God. Um, The peace with God even. And, And so what are we supposed to do with all this information, how does this actually help us to not sin or not blame God, right? For, for one, knowing how something works really helps us not fall for it. When you know what's going on, you can identify it. Uh, a few years back, someone got into our church directory and started to text a bunch of you saying they were me. And they were saying, hey, I need some uh, gift cards. Could you go out and get gift cards? I'm trying to help someone. I want to get them to them. And then if you got the gift cards they would tell you, well, scratch off the back and give me the numbers on the back because we really want to hurry this up. Uh, and, and it almost worked on a couple of kind-hearted people. Most of you either know me well enough or just aren't kind people, I don't know. <laughs> but knowing how this scam works helps us identify what's really going on and, and thus not fall for it. I get the sense that if I text you for a gift card later day you're like, no, this is not you, like, please help. But knowing how sin works, it, it helps you then to start asking questions to see, oh, so this is what's going on. This is why I'm feeling the way I am. This is what's actually working out in my life. I can see the slow motion thing at process that, 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 that James was talking about. It helps you fight against that ungodly desire to say, oh, this, this desire I have right now, this is not good. I, I must bring this under the authority of, of God's word right now before it conceives and gives birth to that little monster that's going to grow up, Right? That's sin and then death. Now the other really applicable part is in verse 16. When when facing difficult trials, right again, don't be deceived. That's what he's saying. And then immediately he kind of says, right, don't be deceived about what you think of God. Picture him right. right? Don't believe that lie that says God doesn't care about you. That God hasn't given you anything in this life but a bunch of miserable pain. Don't believe that. What, What protects you From being deceived, then, is a rock-solid conviction that our Heavenly Father is good. And more than that, that that He is unrelentingly good to you. That's why James says what he says here in verse 17. Look at it. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now, remember the, the truth that God has given you every good and perfect gift. He, he gives you the sun that, that heats up and lights this planet so that it's teeming with life, right? So he gives food of a massive variety, and he gives you this weird tongue that can interpret that food into, like, pleasure and flavors and all that kind of neat stuff. And he gives you a body that comes standard, right, with five different senses. That's a lot. He, he gives pink sunsets, and he gives blue ocean. He gives you family and friends, and he gives you his word, I mean, you name something good in this world, in your life, and I'll tell you who gave it to you. The Lord God Almighty, that's who. God is holy, and everything that comes from Him is good and perfect. And this is where it really gets awkward for us, right? In James, right? Because if God is good, and everything He gives us is good, then that means even the trials that you are going through are one of God's good gifts. Even if it doesn't feel like it at the moment. James here in verse 17 refers to God as the father of lights. He is a, a father, first of all, that's always significant. A good father that cares for us as his children. And, and, and the light aspect here is contrast to darkness as, as well as simply acknowledging, right, that among God's good gifts are, are the sun and the moon and the stars which, which God brought into existence. When, when, when James says there's, there's no variation in God due to change, the point is that God is so perfectly wise, good, powerful, holy, etc., right, that he, that he can't change. That's the thing, right? If I created something that's perfect, truly perfect, there's no upgrades to it. Otherwise, that would prove it wasn't perfect before. And so God doesn't change. There is no perfection above His perfection. Which also means this. God is not fickle. Whew pretty important, isn't it? A lot of us are fickle to some degree. We meet people that are incredibly fickle at times. You don't know fickle, right? You change your mind. Oh, I love you today. I hate you tomorrow. I hate you today. You know, back and forth. Christian, your Heavenly Father will not change His love for you. He is not fickle. There's not something that slips out of your mouth today. He's like, I'm done with him. Done with her. He's not fickle. Finally, in verse 18, we see James this give birth language again right uh, uh, of his own will god brought us forth okay that's that birth idea right in other words god took counsel with himself and he resolved not to leave us in sin further it's it's not by our own efforts that we, we come to have faith that, that we are we are born again right that's the language that we 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 see in christ later in the in the gospels and right we we don't we don't contribute to our are being born again birth any more than you contributed to your first birth. You're like, here I am. It just happened. Um, it's a work of God through the means of the word of truth is what he says there, right? Through the means of the word of truth. That's the scriptures. That, that's the gospel message. And we know that for sure because a number of places actually use that phrase and then, and then kind of define that phrase. One of them is Colossians five, where Paul says, this you have heard before in the word of truth the Gospel right so powerful is the glorious message of, of the Gospel of Christ that that it can grip any sinner and make them into new people A new person right They're grammatically right can make you redeemed, and you and I we, we want to are we still sinners? Yes, you know that, you sin, but we 're also saints, we are redeemed by the blood of jesus and and James, making reference to the Old Testament sacrifice, right, says here that we are a kind of first fruits. I like that he qualifies it like that, right? Our, our lives are an offering to our heavenly Father, and, and the joy of our salvation today, right, is uh, the joy of our salvation today is just a small taste of what's to come. Just like the first fruits were a small taste of the whole harvest that's still to come after that. And to bring this to a close, then let me just remind you of today's main point. Sin is deadly, but God is is good. And and nowhere is that seen more clearly than in the greatest of the good and the perfect gifts that has ever come down to us from the Father of lights. That is the the gift of Jesus Christ. That is God in flesh. That that is Christ who, who wore the crown of thorns so that you and I can receive the crown of life. Keep this in the forefront of your mind when you are facing trials, when you are resisting temptations, whether big or small. And finally, I want to I end with a quote from, from Ruth Simmons. She says, the good life isn't the absence of heartache. It is the presence of God by grace in the midst of it. Our hope in the midst of hardship is that D- Jesus doesn't just work things out for our good. He is our good. Let's pray. Father of lights, there is no shadow, no darkness in you, and we whom you have welcomed into your family, we desire to love you and to do it well. Today we've seen how temptation deceives us, how it promises good and delivers death, that today we have also learned that that every good gift and every perfect gift comes to us from your gracious hand. Teach us to believe that when we feel the draw of temptation in our life, when we feel that desire to blame You, when we feel abandoned. Make us to believe that. And Teach us to indeed love You, Lord, more than anything and everything in this world. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.